If you have a Bible, you can turn there or look up here. It's okay. And uh, to remind you or catch you up if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been in the book of Galatians all semester. And in this little letter, Paul is trying to do a few things. He's trying to help these people that he knows and loves uh, remember the goodness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That that he has made them right based on what he's done, not on what they've done. They've sort of gone off track. And so he's clarified for them over and over in the first few chapters how they're made right, not by their own actions, not by their own beliefs even, but they're made right by Jesus' work. And then, uh, starting a couple chapters ago, he begins to discuss the benefits of believing in Jesus. And uh, they're myriad and beautiful, that we belong to him, we're part of the family, we have a new identity, that we have freedom in him. And for the last few weeks, we've been discussing uh, the benefit that we get to grow. We change. We're not stuck being our same selfish inward selves, but Jesus is out to make us beautiful like himself. And we're spending four weeks talking about that, uh, and we discussed so far how we change. And we've discussed last week that change means a changed relationship with God. It's now characterized by uh, love and joy and peace. And this week we're going to discuss uh, how growth and change affects our relationship with others. It now is marked by patience and kindness and goodness. All right, so I'm going to read uh, Galatians 5, 16 to 26. I'm going to skip around a little bit. So starting in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now skipping down to verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Good Lord Jesus, we ask that uh, in our weakness, in our distractedness, uh, in our hard-heartedness, in our apathy, wherever we might be tonight, that you would meet us. We ask that you would show us how great is your love, whether we are familiar with it and we've believed it for a long time, and uh, we know it right now, emotionally, existentially, or that felt like a long time ago. And I know it's true in my head, but not in my heart. Whether that's our story, or we're not sure you're real at all, or that you're good, would you be kind to show up tonight and show us from your word what you're like, how great is your love, and how it changes the way we relate to others. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, two things came across, uh, you know, my little handheld device this week that caught my attention, and uh, two different stories, very different, uh, both illustrating how hard it is to love others, okay? First, from Antarctica. Uh, in Antarctica recently, uh, you don't usually get news from Antarctica, by the way, um, there, was, there were two engineers, one named Sergei Savitsky, 55, and another one named Oleg Beluzagov. I should know how to pronounce Russian better than I do. Beluzagov. Uh, they're both professional scientists at the Bellingshausen Station on the very remote King George Island, part of the South Shetland Island Group. Anyone know where any of these things are? 
They're about as far south as you can get, basically, without actually being in Antarctica. Anyway, uh, it's pretty remote, as you might imagine down there. They don't have much to do when they're not working. They're both men are avid readers. However, one of them has a bad habit of telling the other guy the ending of every book. <laughs> and so Sergei Savitsky plunged a kitchen knife into his friend's chest. First attempted murder in Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> so, summary, step back out. You can be a person with similar jobs, similar interests, similar backgrounds, even like the same books. In other words, you should have every reason to be friends. Okay? And you still might want to kill them. Loving people is hard. Okay? Completely different, much lighter note. Um, did you realize there's another Grinch movie being made? Now, the third Grinch movie, Grinch number three. Uh, Grinch this time will be voiced, played by Doctor Strange, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, it'll be pretty interesting. See how that works. Anyway, uh, I didn't really dig into the movie yet. I just simply read a little meme about it. It was a friendly reminder, and it simply said, "Just so we're clear, the Grinch never really hated Christmas." He just hated people, which is fair. (laughs) Did you know that Starbucks is open on Christmas Day? It is. Do you know why? Talk to people that work there. And they all pretty much say the same thing, which is that, you know, lots of people, many people who love Christmas and love their family, give them gifts and enjoy the morning, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon have had all they can take with the people they love. And they're looking to get away. Because loving people is hard. Loving people is hard. Sometimes circumstances make it harder, you know, like living in Antarctica. Uh, Sometimes the people themselves make it harder by being obnoxious and, you know, ruining the end of movies or books. They're obnoxious, they're awkward, whatever the case may be. And what we typically want is for the circumstances or the people to change. I can love you better or easier if only these things will change. If only I wasn't so busy or you weren't so terrible. And when those things don't work, then we actually revert to changing the definition of love. A sort of general affirmation of your humanity or tolerance Or uh, maybe even some kind of broad advocacy. You just do your thing, and we call that love. Uh, But the Bible won't let us get away with that. The Bible is really clear on what love is. And it's uh, far more beautiful and far more demanding than what we make it out to be. And it's also really clear on what needs to change. And it's, you know, we'd love to change the circumstances and change those people. But what the Bible tells us is we got to change. Us. We have to become more loving people. And what we're going to see tonight briefly is that when we grow in Christ's love, we grow toward people. We become more patient and kind and good. So we grow toward people in patience and kindness and goodness. And tonight we'll talk about uh, the tough love of patience and the tender love of kindness and the dependable love of goodness. All right? So uh, let's talk about patience first. Fruit of the Spirit is patience. And uh, patience is a bit of a complicated word in Scripture. It means at least two things. 
here you have like an old version of the Bible. It might say long-suffering, which actually helps us understand both. Uh, first, it means enduring persecution or suffering. Okay? You're in DFEQ, and you call it being patient. Because you just have to get through, if you get through at all. It's just a trial, and you realize it's a trial. Um, so, that can call us patience. Uh, the other version of patience that's also clear in the Bible is forbearance. It is forgiveness or bearing with someone else's weaknesses. So let me give you an example. Uh, you're stuck in traffic. You're stuck in traffic trying to get through. Oh, no. Let me use this as an example right now. Let me help you. Uh, when it's time to leave for Thanksgiving, if you're driving, leave before 3 o'clock on Tuesday or after 8. Do not try to leave any time between 3 and 7. Because you will be in traffic for hours just to get out of the city. Now, the first sitting in traffic just for hours in the city, that is endurance. You're just sitting there enduring the suffering, avoiding. But imagine you have the most obnoxious person in your car. You thought, it's only three hours to Carlisle. It'll be okay. It's just three hours. No, now it's six hours with someone who's the most obnoxious person you know. That is forbearance. You're having to forbear and carry the weight of their awfulness, their awkwardness, their obnoxiousness. You get the difference of the two? All right, cool. Well, God's full of both. And uh, we're going to talk about God's patience here. And uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you just sort of have a cursory understanding, you may think, that's a bit interesting because when I think about the Bible, I don't think about his patience. I think about sometimes his impatience, quick to wrath, crushes people. Um, but if you were to sit down and read through the whole Old Testament, which would take you a long time, um, you would be struck by how patient God is. In fact, the prophets would be really surprised that you were surprised that God's not patient. Because the prophet's job was, for decades after decades, to tell God's people, to plead with God's people, to come back to him. That he loves them and wants them, and they would not listen. And God kept trying. So, sort of an example of this, a little flavor of this from Hosea chapter 11, Hosea writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is God speaking, if you will. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to other gods, the Baals, burning offerings to idols. And yet it was I who taught him to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and I fed them. And here the picture of, is of tremendous love and care, but patience because they will not listen and come back. In Exodus 34, uh, Moses has asked God to show him God's glory. Show him God's glory. And after some mornings, God says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm like in he briefly recounts and displays his character for Moses. And he says in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. It's on the list right there, number three. He's a patient God. And what's really cool is where this happens. This happens in Exodus 34. So if you know the Bible or math, um, before Exodus 34 is Exodus 1 through 20 where God delivers his people from slavery. They didn't do anything to deserve it. He brings them out of, of slavery. And on Exodus, in Exodus 20, he, he makes a covenant with them. He basically comes to them and says, hey, I want to be your God. Do you want to be my people? This is what it will look like. I'm with you forever. I am for you. Do you want to be my people? And Exodus 20 and following is sort of a, it's called a covenant ceremony. Uh, it's like a marriage in some ways. God is yoking himself to the people. 
And it's really lovely and beautiful. Well, what follows after Exodus 20, but before Exodus 34, is Exodus 32. And Exodus 32 is a disaster. Let me try to explain what happens in Exodus 32. It's sort of like this. Occasionally, I get to do weddings. I think I'm going to get to do a couple in the next year. Pretty excited about that. And uh, the last thing I do in a wedding is, you know, present the bride and groom. And they walk down the aisle and everyone claps. They're the center of attention. And while they're the center of attention, I actually sneak away and go do, anybody know? I do paperwork. I do, you have a marriage certificate that has to be signed. That's my job. I have to sign it for the state of Pennsylvania and Allegheny County. And uh, what happens in Exodus 32 is like if, after signing the paper, one minute after the I do walk down the aisle, I went back to the groom and the groom said, she cheated on me. What? She cheated on me. When? Right now. What do you mean right now? You just got married. I know. Walked down the aisle and out, and I found her making out with one of my groomsmen. That's actually, that didn't really happen. I see how shocking your face. No, that didn't really happen in any marriage I did. That's what's happening in Exodus, okay? They have made a marriage covenant. I will be your God. You'll be my people. And while Moses is up on the mountain, finalizing the paperwork, God's people are down the mountain, necessary to playing it up with another God. That's what's going on. This is spiritual adultery, if you will. Okay, you got the picture now? And in Exodus 34, after Exodus 32, God says, I am a merciful, gracious, slow to anger God. Isn't that amazing that he's patient? And, uh, you know, his people are like this. They are half-hearted. They don't respond to his love. And he's not done. That's why the Bible doesn't end in Exodus 32. He doesn't just blast them off the mountain. He keeps trying and pursuing them. He sends them prophets, and eventually he sends them his son. You read through the Gospels, and Jesus' patience jumps off the page. His followers don't understand. They fail him. Uh, The religious leaders expect the worst of him. They don't trust him. They're hard-hearted. They're persecuting him. And as he draws closer to the cross, you see how he's patient in the face of injustice. Grave, the most highest ethical moral system in the world, the Jewish system, fails. The highest legal system in the ancient world, the Roman system, fails. In the face of all that injustice, he is patient. And he is enduring that injustice in order to practice forbearance. Both versions of patience here. And you see this pretty well spelled out in the book of Isaiah. That what Jesus does on the cross is bear. He bears the weight of our sin. He forgives us. Exodus 53, verses 4, 6, and 12, just parts of it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. What Jesus does, in other words, is patiently endure all the misunderstanding, all the injustice, so that he can go to the cross to bear our sins and failings. Both versions of patience on display here. Let's bring it all back together and sort of tie it up a little bit. So patience, then, as we're trying to understand it as tough, tough patience uh, as, as tough love is not being tough on others. 
That's sometimes what you think when you think of tough love. Like, set some strict parameters, firm expectations, so you will act like you're supposed to. There's room for that, by the way. I'm a parent. I could use all the help giving tough love that you want to give me. Um, but I also need patience. And patience here is the tough love internally that, uh, that demands strength and sacrifice. Because it takes strength and sacrifice to endure and to forbear. In other words, what, what Jesus wants out of you is the same kind of patient love that God in Jesus has. That's what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit. He wants to work into you that kind of tough, loving patience. He expects it of us. It's what he wants out of us. And uh, you know, of course, it's really hard. I mean, it's not really hard if you don't know anyone or you don't care about anybody. Apathy, by the way, sort of cuts you off from all this. If you want to be apathetic, go right ahead. I don't ever get impatient. That's because you don't care about anything. But, or anyone. Um, but for most of us, we have this internal war going on that Paul talks about, the desire of the flesh versus the spirit. And what that means is we struggle with patience. What do we want? Well, we want people to get what they deserve. We want them to get what they deserve. When they hurt us, when they hurt others, we want them to suffer for it. We don't see justice, right? And uh, often we want people to get out of our way. Just, would you move? Don't you know that no one should ever walk three wide on the sidewalk? It's like, it should be a law. I should just have the right to, like, knuckle-punch you in the back of the knee if you're walking three wide <laughs> on the sidewalk. And, like, whether we're driving or in class, whatever the... Just, please, get out of my way. I'm trying to go somewhere. I'm trying to do something. And, and it could even be, like, career-wise, social-wise. We want people out of our way. Here's another one. We want people to understand us. We want people to get us. We think they should naturally get us. I shouldn't have to explain what I'm thinking to you. Think about some of your interactions with your roommates or your friends or your family. I shouldn't have to explain. You should know this by now. Didn't you, didn't you hear what I said? You didn't say anything. Didn't you read my mind? <laughs> I mean, we really expect people to get us. That's how impatient we are. And uh, just a couple questions. How tough is your patience? Are you a patient person that can endure and forbear with other people's weaknesses? Do you have tough patience or are you tough on other people? How do you get this tough love of patience? Well, just a couple tips. Uh, One, I think the very best thing to do, because this is not behavior modification, this is Christian growth, it's to remember how much Jesus loves you, even though you're very, very undeserving of it. Even though you fail, even though you misunderstand even though you're impatient with him and others. In other words, remember that Jesus is very patient with you every single day. He loves you. That's part of his love. He's patient with you. And uh, believe that. Remember that. Hold on to that. And uh, as it regards, if you remember, we talked about the waltz the last few weeks. The waltz is the Christian steps of believing, repenting, and fighting. Believe that God is patient with you and loves you and Turn from your impatience. Refuse to, to do it anymore. And the fighting here might just look like, this is very practical. There's more you could do. Very practical. If you're having trouble being impatient with others, start by just not saying anything. Just You don't have to say anything. That's a good first step. Like, you may want to. You may want them to understand. You may want them to have it. But a good, it's not the last step. good first step is just... Just be quiet. 
Be slow to speak, quick to listen. So love is patient and love is kind. Let's talk about kindness real quick. The tender love of kindness. And this is really a heart disposition. It's one that empathetically sees other people's needs and then quickly takes actions to meet those needs, even at your own cost. And again, we see this in God's love, his kindness. In Exodus 34, God revealing himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That word steadfast love is a beautiful word in the Old Testament. It's a special word. It shows up everywhere. It's one of the words I will refer to you in the original language. I don't like to do this because it makes me sound like a nerd. It's the word hesed. It shows up everywhere all the time. And uh, a good example of this is Psalm 136. Psalm 136 begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. And then it repeats that phrase, His loving kindness endures forever, 26 times. Like it makes, I want you to get the point. His loving kindness really does endure forever. In all situations, all circumstances, in all the ways that we can see, His loving kindness endures. Uh, Perhaps you're not familiar with that one. Maybe you're familiar with this one. Psalm 23. Um, If you're not familiar with scripture, you probably heard this at a funeral. If you haven't been to a funeral, you may have heard it from a funeral on television. It begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It, It ends this way. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word mercy is the same word. It's his loving kindness. Surely his goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in God's house forever. God is full of loving kindness. If we're his people, it haunts us. It's everywhere we go all the time. And the picture of Psalm 23 is a shepherd who cares for his people, sees their needs and meets them. A king who knows his people, sees their needs and meets them. And the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm, of of how we get to know his goodness and his loving kindness, and it follows us all the time, is it has to be with us, and it is with us in the person of Jesus. God sends his son to be with us and to be given for us. So where do we see Christ's kindness? Well, if you say the, the, the Gospels, you'll see his kindness on display all the time. But to be as direct as possible, we see his kindness in the mere fact that he came to do what he came to do. This is from uh, Paul's letter to, uh, to Titus. He writes, we ourselves, I know I'm reading a lot of scripture, hang with me. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. This is how you win people over, by the way. Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not the best lot of people. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy. In other words, we most clearly see the loving kindness, the kindness of God, and the fact that Jesus came to live and die for us. He came to save us. That was God's kindness on display. In other words, Jesus, undeserved though he is, is the kindest gift we could ever receive. And it's exactly what we needed. It's what we needed to make us right with God, to fix this relationship, and what we needed to make us beautiful, to live the kind of lives God's called us to be. And so the call is for us to have this kind of fruit. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Also, if you read Paul elsewhere, love is patient, love is kind. Right? So we're called to be kind. And, uh, and that 
hey, look, I got a peculiar allergy. I'm from the South, as you know, maybe. And in the South, people are expected to be nice. And I don't like it. Um, because what that means for most people there is a certain kind of external disposition. You smile, you say hi all the time, you wave to strangers as they're passing in the truck. That's all fine. But half the time it's not real, it's not phony, it's sort of phony. And I think it's a virtue there. It's not a bad one, it's better than being a rude place. But people think it's the same thing as kindness, and it's not. It's not. And uh, God's calling us to kindness, not to a counterfeit, to a real heart kindness, a tender-heartedness. It's not something you can fake. It involves uh, having a soft heart and dirty hands. And uh, it means, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, that we actually have to, this is really hard for us to do. I want to be really, really clear that being kind is a hard call. It means counting others more significant than yourselves and looking not only to your own interests but to the interests of others. On a daily basis, being kind means you have to count the people around you more important than yourself. Did you hear what I just said? Busy academians. And count their needs more important than your own. In other words, kindness is costly. It has to come from the heart. It has to take action. And it's costly. And all that's vulnerable, man. It, it means cost. It means suffering a little bit. It means inconvenience. And it means risk. That means you're going to take action. You don't know how it's going to be received. Let me give you a little picture, though, of how beautiful kindness is in action. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's hard because it has to come from the heart. It has to no need and meet need, even though it's sacrificial. It's not complicated. It's hard, but it's beautiful. This is a story from Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott's a pretty well-known writer. She writes a lot of memoirs. She writes a lot about writing. I, I never interviewed her, but I think she's a Christian. Very messy one, if you read her. <laughs> so let you know. She's coming from some really hard places. But I believe she's a Christian. And in one of her books, she writes this. Last night, I decided it was crazy to believe in Jesus. And then something amazing happened. A man from church showed up at our front door, and after exchanging pleasantries, he said, I want to do something for you and the baby. And what I wanted to ask you is if what if a fairy appeared on your doorstep and said that he or she would do any favor for you at all, anything you wanted, around the house that you felt too exhausted to do by yourself or too ashamed to ask anyone else to help with. And I said, it's too horrible. But he finally convinced me to tell him, and he ended up spending an hour scrubbing my bathtub and toilet and sink with Ajax and hot water. And I just sat on the couch watching TV, feeling vaguely guilty and nursing my son to sleep. But it made me feel sure of Christ again of that kind of love. This, just a man scrubbing a new mother's bathtub, is what Jesus looks like to me. So, there you go. An act of kindness where someone sees need, asks, and follows up. And it's beautiful, right? Isn't it? I mean, scrubbing, the, it's not beautiful, but it's beautiful to her. What does kindness look like? It can look like a man cleaning a single mom's toilet. It looks like Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It looks like you, friends, sure of God's tender, kind love for you, that you can make a sacrifice because he has you. He's going to take care of you. You, sure of his love, not walking past people in need. 
but stopping and asking, how can I help you? Offering a kind word or a hug for those that are despondent. Offering a sincere but simple, hey, how are you, to that guy that never leaves his room. Maybe an invitation to lunch for that person you know slowly. So growing in Christ means growing peopleward and patience and kindness. The last one's goodness. We'll do this one quickly. Goodness simply means being the same kind of person in word and deed every single day. And God's goodness is on display in Exodus 34. In Exodus 33, Moses says, hey, come and show me what you're like. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And he goes before him and says, I'm the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of loving kindness. We saw it also in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. His goodness is seen in his patience and in his loving kindness. That he is good and he does good. He's faithful. That means he cannot be good. No, he cannot not be good. Oh, so many bad mistakes. Yeah. He's always good. And one of the answers you may be asking yourself, you should be asking yourself, is like, hey, Derek, why did you read so much Bible tonight? Don't you know it's a little boring for us? Um, Because I need you to see anywhere you go, everywhere in this book, no matter how far back, how many years ago, it's the same God. That he is always patient, always kind, always good. It might be boring to you. It's always beautiful. He is trustworthy in his love. He's always the same every single day. And Jesus was the same. When he came, no matter what the temptation, he was the same every day. He could not be taken from his course. Whether it was the devil's temptation in the wilderness, or his own friends like Peter trying to steer him off the course, or the fear the natural human fear of what he was going to face when he was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would not, he just would not steer away from what he was called to do. He persevered in his goodness. He spent his whole life doing good until it was time to give away his good life. And we're called to be like that. God promises here in the text that if we walk in Jesus' love, walk by the Spirit, he will work the same kind of integrity into us. The same kind of dependability into you. What does that look like? It means you do the right thing even when it hurts. It means you keep your promises. It means you're the same kind of person on Friday night as you are on Thursday night and Sunday morning. It means you don't let a situation, whether it's a party you're at, or meeting someone on the street, or even being under stress, dictate how you treat people. That you're patient and kind and good no matter what. No matter where. No matter who's with you. Now, I know that's really hard and a really high standard. But this is what God wants to grow in us. This is the kind of beauty He wants in our lives because it's good for people. Remember, this is growing people word. And if you want to love people, you know what you need to be you got to be dependable. you got to be the kind of person that people can trust. And when your love is dependably good like this, people will trust you. They know you're not out to use them. They know your care doesn't depend on your circumstances. You become a safe place, a refuge for them. 
That's a beautiful thing, right? So in summary, God wants us to grow us in all these ways. When we rest in Jesus and know his love, he makes us patient like he's patient and kind like he's kind and good and dependable like he's good. I'm going to close with a story real quick. A few weeks ago, I was away at a conference and had a chance to hear one of my old pastors uh, preach, and he told this story, and I thought it was pretty cool, so I was sharing it with you. Uh, in other words, this is a recent theft. Um, this pastor of mine uh, pastored at one time in a beautiful, old, historic church in Augusta, Georgia. If you don't know much about Augusta, Georgia, it's a very interesting place. Parts of that city are very, very poor, and parts of that city are very, very rich and proper. So this is where the Masters is held every April. The Masters is this huge golf tournament. It's beautiful. If you don't have a sense of what this is like, watch 10 minutes of the Masters in April. You'll be like, oh, now I get it. Well, the church is in that kind of neighborhood. It's a beautiful, prim, proper, respectable church. And he'd been passing there for some time. And one service afterwards, a, a guy approached him. And my pastor, whose name was George, recognized him as a pastor scholar and this guy asked, hey, George, have you ever given much thought to that stained glass behind you? The church had beautiful stained glass along the sides and behind the pulpit. George turned and looked and was like, yeah. He admitted he hadn't really actually given it much thought to us. <laughs> In other words, he admitted he sort of lied. Um, and uh, and the, it was remarkable for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that the stained glass uh, primarily portrayed Mary Magdalene. Now, if you're not familiar, Mary Magdalene was a person in the New Testament that came to Jesus from a life of prostitution and possession. She, she was a pretty messy person, a very messy person, okay? And she was absolutely prominent in this picture. She was front and center, and Jesus was behind. And the scholars simply want to know, isn't that interesting? And George is like, now that you think about it, it is interesting. And then the scholar asked, why do you think she's wearing a blue dress? And George looked and said, I don't know. <laughs> I'll think about it. And he forgot to think about it. And the guy came back and asked him again. He's like, oh, i got to think about this. So uh, one day, uh, a slow day in the office, he decided, I've got to give this some thought. So he came into the sanctuary and turned off the lights and, and stared at the picture. And as the sunlight came through, he began to notice things. And the first thing he noticed was, okay, Mary Magdalene's in the foreground and Jesus is in the background. She's wearing a blue dress. He's wearing an orange cloak. Her dress is not, it's not just blue. It's, it's red and there's a little bit of orange. There's a little bit of yellow. There's some green over there. Some indigo purple over there. And then he looked a little bit more closely, intently at Jesus and he realized that's, that's not so much an orange cloak as it is the light coming off of him, shining onto her. It's the, it's the sun of righteousness gleaming on her. And then he saw it all at once. That the picture was a picture of Jesus and his love and his beauty and his righteousness shining on her and reflecting through her tears. And making her beautiful. All the beautiful righteousness of himself. All the colors of the rainbow. The fruit of the Spirit. This is how Jesus works. 
through our repentance, our sorrow. God shines his righteous love in us and works through our brokenheartedness to make us beautiful like himself. To grow in us his own beauty, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. I know some of you are, are here thinking, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hearing you talk about all this people word stuff, and I'm not really a people person. I just sort of want a few friends. Well, I hope you get a few friends. But I actually hope for something much better for you, is that you would know Jesus' love in such a way that it would shine upon you and work in you and out of you in such a way that it would make you a radically different kind of person that actually really loves people. One that's not just looking for friends, but seeking to be a friend. One who's patient and kind and good and robed with all the love of Jesus. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we pray you would be kind to work uh, in the midst of our failings, in the midst of our lack of patience and our lack of kindness and our lack of goodness. That you would help us to turn to you, genuine uh, dislike of those things.